This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant women, 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 deviant women. And welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. I'm Lauren. I'm Alicia. Welcome back to the show for another week. I don't know why I'm talking like this. <laughs> Stop. Stop it. Stop it. How are you, Lauren? Oh, I'm all right. You know, my voice feels scratchy to me, but I don't know if it's coming across as scratchy. Doesn't sound scratchy to me. Yeah. But I'm not sick. I'm Thanks not sick God. or anything. I think it's just from breathing heavily while I work out <laughs> at home for the this is a new thing that I've put back into my life after many years of not doing that. And uh, my body is responding strangely. Oh yeah. To physical exercise. <laughs> yeah. It'll do that. Yeah. High intensity cardio. <laughs> well, I'm not doing high intensity cardio, but I am um, going for walks. Good. It's important to be active, to do something. (laughs) So we've got our bodies moving. That's good. (laughs) And today, ladies and gentlemen and boys and girls and everyone in between, we're going to get our brains moving. Oh, okay. (laughs) Do we not normally do that? Is that new for this podcast? Like is this news? Not necessarily. I was just like (laughs) clutching at straws for some kind of segue there. I was going to say, is this this figure today like a particularly academic figure? Is there some like deep-seated mystery at the heart of her story (laughs) that we have to untangle? (laughs) No, not really. No, I haven't given you many hints about today's figure. We had a conversation maybe like two or so weeks ago and you told me that you knew who you were going to do and you gave me some hints about the fact that it was going to be at some points quite shockingly violent, but you didn't reveal anything other than that. And I've been wondering what that might mean. Ooh. Well, violent. Oh, yeah, no, there is some violence. Actually, there is violence. Or some sort of very abject, gross, disturbing. Like I'm picturing we're entering a horror movie. (laughs) We're not. Well, we're not. All right. Look, maybe I've played up the horror movie angle of it a little bit. So now I'm going to be disappointed. But no, there is one particular part of today's narrative that is horrific. It is horrific. (laughs) It is. But it's not the be all and end all of today's. It's not like a horror story. We're not going. It's not like the possession of Ludan or something. No, it's nothing like that. In fact, interestingly, it's much more in line with our more sort of lighthearted, belle epoque sort of frivolity and frivolousness. Yes, this is where the majority of our story takes place. I was not expecting that. I was ready for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. No. Sorry, oh, you obviously I'm the hints sorry. you gave me when they were very abstract, and obviously my brain just went to a strange place with I'm them. S- yeah, I'm sorry for misleading you <laughs> down that path. Yeah, so sorry about that, but we're actually going to be um, treading some exciting and familiar ground a little bit around the muse, which we the also muse. love. Yeah, oh. we love a good old muse story, and this one's got a few important trappings, but in this one, right, beauty. Beauty. 
will become our hubris. Oh, fantastic. Do you know what I just realized is that I think maybe for the first time I am even less aware of who we're doing than the audience because I don't even know the name (laughs) of this person. Like I just, it just occurred to me, you had, you were like, yeah, I know who I'm doing. I'm not going to tell you who it is because I don't want to spoil it for you. And I don't even know her name. Sorry. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even tell you anything. You didn't tell me anything. I'm sorry. I never told you anything at all. (laughs) I didn't think to ask many questions to be fair. So the mystery woman who everyone else will know by now because her name's on the show, <laughs> is why it is tis Gladys Marie Spencer Churchill, Duchess of Marlborough, oh. otherwise known as Gladys Deacon, which probably doesn't make it any clearer no, to you who she is. None of that means anything to me. I've never heard of this person before, but she sounds pretty spectacular. She is a bit spectacular. Well, I'm not surprised. She's not exactly a household name, but she was certainly famous in her time and she has got quite an intriguing story. So I mentioned that beauty is going to become the hubris in today's story and I feel like maybe that's not exactly the best way of putting it because I think that often when we think of, you know, beauty in that kind of sense, we're sort of talking about vanity, right? And Mm -hmm. we kind of sort of feel like vanity is this very um, negative sort of thing. But I think actually the opposite of vanity is truer here. It's kind of a bit of a a lack of self-love rather than an excess of self-love, you know. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like we've been also having a – like just us two personally have been having some conversations about beauty and vanity and intersections with how – women perceive themselves as Mm. being beautiful and what that means in terms of other ways that they might understand themselves as well Mm. as and whether seeing yourself as being a beautiful person is at odds with being a witty person or an intelligent person Mm. or Mm. you know a funny person so yeah and interesting yeah this is a conversation that we will get to in Gladys's story and that's kind of when where we're going to hit the hurdle of this little bit of the tragic part of her story. So we'll go back in time. We'll we'll start at the very beginning and Mm -hmm. we're going to go back to the end of the 19th century. Sorry Mm. about that, everyone. (laughs) So our Gladys comes from a very rich heritage. She comes from a naval family from California on her mother's side and her father, Edward, came from another well-to-do family from Boston. So her father, Edward, and mother, Florence, married in 1879 and they went to live in Paris because this is what everyone with a bit of money was doing in the um, late 1800s. Everyone who wanted to be anybody, who wanted to be part of that life was moving to Paris because Mm. as we've touched on so many times So many times. (laughs) This is the start of the Belle Epoque. It is the start of that incredibly rich and artistic and vibrant community of artists and intellectuals and wealthy socialites that were all flocking to Paris at the end of the 19th century. It was just the place to be. So Edward and Florence, they were very well-to-do people, so they wanted to be where it was at as well. Florence herself was quite a society beauty. And so this is where Florence and Edward 
ended up after they were married. They had four daughters and a son. Uh, Sadly, the son died in infancy, but the four girls all sort of blossomed into, well, actually one of them didn't quite blossom into womanhood. One of them did die in her early 20s. But (laughs) that is quite sad. I thought, oh, I did actually for a moment think one you were meaning to say one of them didn't blossom as in like there was one. (laughs) The ugly duckling. Yes. (laughs) I didn't want to say that, but yeah, that's what I, that's where I wondered if that's where you were going. And I was like, oh, gee, you're being a bit harsh with your judgments there. (laughs) No. But Florence, the mother, she was quite a society beauty herself and she loved the social life. And in fact, she maybe loved the social life a little bit more than she loved being Her children. a mother. Yeah. <laughs> but this was, I think, you know, but this is also an interesting one because this was common of the time anyway. Because it really people with was. Money, people with money, you could afford governesses. You could afford yeah, yeah, nannies. Yeah. You saw your children like, for like five minutes when they came and kissed you goodnight. Yeah. Before they went to bed. You'd be like, oh, hello, darling. I forgot about you. Yeah. <laughs> Give mommy a kiss on the cheek. Okay, goodbye. Which one They're are you all again? the Baroness from The Sound of Music. You know? Yeah, exactly. That light little kiss on the cheek. And then you yeah. send them off to boarding school. Precisely. Bye. So. But she did love her daughters, as some of her actions will, will go to show. Okay. But there was sure definitely there was definitely that relationship <laughs> that was part of her status and rank and class as well. She did, however, teach her daughters some neat little tricks, which she herself, as a society beauty, had learnt. And one of those tricks was that it was always best for the girls to treat any suitors that might come their way as dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and that it Great. was all... Yeah, it was excellent advice, Mum. Yeah, thanks, Mum. Great advice because it was always sort of best to hold back treats and make them beg. Oh, so you know, this was her motherly advice that she passed on to her daughters. So I think you know, it's not bad. Do with that what you will. (laughs) Do with that what you will. Gladys certainly took this advice to heart, though as we will see. (laughs) So the children grew up with their mother and father in this sort of very lavish social life. And they travelled around a lot together, of course, going where society parties were at. And it was in February of 1892 when Gladys was just 11 that she and her family were staying in Cannes. Now, this is an interesting one because her mother's lover was also staying in Cannes at the same time. (laughs) Hello. Hello. This is a thing that the upper classes get away with a lot, isn't it? Oh, They have lovers everywhere, just all over the place. Absolutely. And Florence was, as I said, she was quite the looker and she had no lack of uh, suitors coming her way. So, And she's the, still with her husband, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so He's probably got his own lovers. It's fine. Well, this is interesting, right, because there's nothing in the records to suggest that he does. In oh. fact, the story goes that Edward, the husband, was pretty jealous and suspicious of his oh. lovely and beautiful wife. And when they arrived at the hotel in Cannes, he had his suspicions about who Florence was having an affair with as well. And he, he insisted on checking through the register to see what other guests were staying in the hotel. And lo and behold, he found the name of the man who he suspected his wife mm. of having an affair with. So he demanded that they leave that hotel and go and stay in another hotel, which Florence agreed to. They went and moved to another hotel. Florence was the one who sorted out their new digs for them in this new hotel. And when she did, she said, oh, look, sorry, because this is another thing rich families used to do. You'd also have separate sort of rooms and chambers. Yes. So 
very, very common to have your own rooms in a hotel and rather than staying together. So she said, oh, look, sorry, Edward, I couldn't get us all a room together. So I have my chambers on this floor. I couldn't get any other chambers on this same floor. (laughs) So you and the children will need to stay in the floor above. You and the children. Yeah. Yeah. Edward's like, yeah, all right. Okay. (laughs) So Edward again demands to go through the register, finds the same man's name there. He's now moved to this hotel following Florence around. But under the lover's instructions. Use a fucking fake name, dude. Anyway, sorry, go on. Why not pretend? Like, it's really so silly. But the lover has instructed all the staff to lie, to say that he's already checked out if Edward (laughs) asks any questions. Okay, so if he's going to that length, why not just use a different name? I know. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous tangled web, but this is how you function in society. This is how things play out. So Edward is... So angry and so suspicious that he finally decides he wants to demand a divorce from Florence. He's had enough of it. But, of course, a divorce would be devastating for Florence because this Mm. would make her a social outcast and society life is basically the only thing she lives for. This is what she loves. So she refuses the divorce. So they carry on in this fucking little charade of happy families until – Edward finally catches them together in some very incriminating circumstances uh-huh. in Florence's hotel boudoir. Uh-huh. Mm. Is something? Is this where the bad thing's going to happen? Yeah, a bad thing happens here. But this okay. is not the bad thing. There are more oh. bad things. There's another bad thing to come. Okay. So Edward comes charging down to her room, banging on the door, demanding to be admitted to the room. Florence and her lover are definitively in there getting it on because (laughs) Edward basically bashes the door down to find Florence's lover basically doing up his pants. Yeah, yeah. So it's a very compromising position to be discovered in. Edward has also come prepared. He is... He's got a sword. No, he's packing a pistol. Of course. Florence's lover, who's also a bit of a coward dies behind the sofa and Edward fires three shots into the sofa and, of course, he hits his wife's lover. Dun-dun-dun. As who, as you might suspect, doesn't die at the scene but dies later from his injuries. Of course. So Gladys's father is now a murderer. This is her. She's only 11 and she's in the hotel at the time that this happens. Yeah, she's time, probably just like, I thought dad was just going to get some chips. <laughs> and now. Down on the foreshore. Yeah. <laughs> so she's 11 and her family is already fallen Broken. apart in this no. violent oh, outburst. Scandal as well. Scandal. Scandalous. Such, Imagine it. Such She thought scandal. divorce was going to ruin her. Yeah. Yeah. So Edward actually hands himself into the police and this is a huge Huge scandal. It's enormous news. And it's also enormous entertainment for everyone who comes mm. in to sit in on the trial, which is basically of everyone. That's, that's, that's was reality TV of the day. Yeah. You go down to the courthouse, that's where you get your entertainment from. Yeah. So Edward was found guilty of unlawfully wounding Murdering the lover somebody without intent to kill him. Which is, what? Yeah, I know. Sorry, that that's some rich white man bullshit right there. <laughs> he shot at him behind a couch, killed him, and he's just charged with what? Like essentially manslaughter. 
Essentially as if he has no intention to kill him. But he did turn up with a gun in his pocket. He turned up with a gun and shot at him. It wasn't an accident. (laughs) I know. So the interesting thing about this, though, is that apparently Edward made such an impression on the crowd during this trial and the scandal of Florence's affair was so sort of ghastly and shocking that the crowd was all on Edward's side. (laughs) The whole trial. They all thought he was fantastic. So when the sentence was finally handed down, which was only one year imprisonment. Fuck off. Yeah. Jesus Christ. (laughs) I know. For killing a man. The room erupted into boos and hisses. They were so upset that Edward was getting put away whatsoever because they'd all come under his charm and sway and decided that he was the hero. check their fucking privilege. Yeah. Is what they need. And, of course, because Florence is the adulteress, yes. she's the bad guy. Of course. She bought it on. They deserved it. He's I know. He's just an innocent, heartbroken man. He was cuckolded. What Correct. do you expect a man to do? He was He's just protecting his honour. his honour. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but this is actually, you know, this is logically the way that things were... And still are to a large degree. Mm, they construed. Still, still are not to a large degree. Still are full stop. <laughs> End of story. So this also ends up, of course, paving the way for the girls. Like yeah. what is going to become of them now. So they stay with their mother for a little while directly after the trial until Edward brings the public prosecutor against Florence, basically prosecuting her for adultery, which means that the children Mm. permanently are put into his custody. Mm. So -hmm. this is where that sort of idea of the fact that even though he's a murderer, essentially, the wife's adultery is The adultery is is worse worse. than his crime. Yeah. So she's actually less capable of being a parent than he is. Because all he did was shoot a guy behind a couch. Yeah, exactly. Whereas Accidentally, I'm sure. Whereas she was unfaithful. She accidentally let that man into her pants. That's so much worse. (laughs) Sorry, up her dress, whatever. So completely and utterly incapable of looking after the children, they fall into Edward's care. But, of course, Edward's in jail. So (laughs) how is he going to do that? Outrageous. It's ridiculous. So two of the girls, Audrey and Edith, are sent to live with Edward's brother, while the other two, Gladys and her younger sister Dorothy, are sent to live in a convent in Paris. Okay, sorry. Okay, wow. Okay, there's a lot of information just then that I want to talk about. (laughs) Firstly, their names. So we've got Gladys. Audrey, Dorothy, and... Edith. Edith. Holy shit. Firstly, I'm thinking these names are all about to come back into fashion and I'm all for it, (laughs) like old lady names. I already know an Audrey. I already know an Audrey, baby. I think Audrey's are gorgeous and I think also Dorothy and Gladys and Edith, all fabulous names. These are some real good cherry, like, picked names. I'm, (laughs) I'm loving these names. Secondly, I think you're right. I think they are going to come back. They are going to come back. You're so right. They so are. Anyway, sorry. Uh, Secondly, convent. Excellent. You know, this is one of my favourite settings for a good uh, coming of age of any young woman (laughs) had to happen in a convent. We know that we're in for a good story. We do love a convent and we do love things that happen in convents. And this convent (laughs) is going to be, there is going to be a convent scandal. There always is. Is she going to burn it down? Is she going to have a lover? Is she going to starve herself to death? Like there's so many things that you can do in a convent. (laughs) 
there are. There are. Well, it's actually what her mother's going to do. So we will oh. see. Da, da, da. Is her mother going to break her out of the convent? Lauren, you're ruining the I'm story. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so Gladys keeps up correspondence with her mother, right, the whole time she's in this convent. Yeah. And her mother – you know, despite what this sort of idea of the mother is this, you know, like kind of neglectful socialite might suggest, her mother did miss her and love her mm. greatly. So I'm sure when, she did. I was being really harsh before. <laughs> so when Edward was released from his sentence early because of the intervention <laughs> of the US ambassador. Are you fucking kidding me? Are yeah. You- fucking kidding me i know he killed a man and then the u.s ambassador was like oh could you maybe just let him go and they're like he's all right he's a good guy look at that face (laughs) he's an upstanding society man so when he was released early from his sentence florence swooped into the convent on the pretense of taking gladys out for like a stroll and never stole her so she essentially she kidnapped her daughter from the convent was there disguises involved did she dress her up like a page boy or a maid or a swordsman no none of those none of those flower delivery man damn no sorry (sighs) but she still kidnapped her from a convent that's good that's which is more than you've ever done lauren how do when you know? What have you ever kidnapped someone from a convent? I went to a convent? convent school. My school used to be called Loretto Convent. Oh, it really? It wasn't actually a convent when I was there. It was not a convent. Your school looks like Hogwarts. I've been past it. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. I've seen that school. But you were never kidnapped from it, right? No, I was never kidnapped. No. Well, Gladys was. So yeah. Florence sends threats to Edward that – He's never going to see Gladys again. And they began this sort of back and forth of suing and counter-suing each other. She just chose one daughter? Yeah. she Well, Gladys was all she could get. She couldn't get her okay. hands on Dorothy. She could only Wasn't get Gladys. Wasn't there two of them at the convent? Yeah, Gladys and Dorothy. Oh. But all she can oh, get well. her hands on at this stage is Gladys. And she okay. took, she's going to take what she, she can what get. She took what she could get. That's right. So they're back and forth. So they're back and forth. They're putting all sorts of lawsuits against each other. And finally, Edward again wins custody of all of the daughters except Mm. for Dorothy. Interesting. Strangely enough. So Florence was forced to give up Gladys finally. And Florence ended up remaining in France with Dorothy, the youngest daughter. But Edward takes Edith, Audrey and Gladys back to the United States. Mm -hmm. They go back. They head back to Massachusetts. Now, she lives in the U.S. with her father and her sisters for the next three years, being schooled here all the while, and she's growing into an incredibly wily and intelligent and witty young woman who Uh is also very beautiful. Beautiful. (laughs) She is. She's becoming a very beautiful young woman. And I think very much because of the influence of her mother as well, She's not unaware of her own Mm. charms. She knows what she's got. Her mother's the kind of woman who's taught her that if you've got it, you should flaunt it. Yes. So she's already, as this budding teenager, she's very aware of her sort of charms and her 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 sexual powers that are already kind of coming. Sexual powers. Now, interestingly enough, (laughs) man, I wish I still had sexual powers. (laughs) I did once upon a time. I wish that I appreciated them more when I had them. If you're out there with sexual powers, use them. Use them. Use them wisely. (laughs) (laughs) 
So it's also this time as a budding young woman that she hears about, in the paper, she, she hears about and becomes quite obsessed with the marriage of a woman called Consuela Vanderbilt, who was a very famed society of beauty herself and the heiress, uh, like an American railroad heiress. Oh, my God. Okay. Which is a good thing to be at the time. Oh, that's where you want to be. Yeah. That is where you want to be. That's where the money's at. She hears about her marriage to the Duke of Marlborough which is an, an English title, right? So they've Yes, I was going to say. Yeah, they've fallen in love. It was a European of some kind. Yes. Well, actually, I just said they've fallen in love, but they hadn't really. It was more of a marriage of convenience because mm. really the Duke's title was much more just really a title than it yeah. was anything that came with too much sort of monetary value. He did have an enormous property, which we'll learn a little bit more about as we go, but she was the one who had all the money. So yeah. really the marriage was of a marriage of convenience. The well, that Duke was quite common, wasn't it? Because oh, you absolutely. would be, if you were new money, you wanted the... The title. You wanted the status. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The legitimacy of that. And if you were landed aristocracy with no money left, you wanted someone who could fill up your coffers and keep caring for your estate. Precisely. So this was a marriage of convenience, but also to young Gladys, it was a marriage of pure fairy tale. It really <laughs> caught her imagination. And she sort of really started fangirling about the Duke as well. Like this was her boy band. This was her okay. boy band moment. She became really fixated on the Duke, really fixated on this idea of their marriage. And in her correspondence with her mother, because even though she's living with her father, she still writes to her mother, they keep up their correspondence all the time. She writes to her mother saying that if only she was a little bit older, then maybe she might have been the one who would have been Called able to get the juice for herself. Yeah. But, you know, she's just a little girl. And in her own words, this is what she wrote to her mother in her own words, was that she was too young, though mature in the ways of women's witchcraft. And what is Ooh. the use of one without the other? <gasps> oh. <laughs> so, so I... So That's basically fabulous. She's, I know, basically she's saying to mum, she's like, mum, I know my feminine wiles. I know what I can do, but I'm too young to do anything about it yet. <laughs> like, so what's the point? Like, she's complaining to her mother that she's like so beautiful and attractive, but she's not yet old enough to wield that witchcraft. To do it. Out on a, yeah, yeah. So this kind of gives us an idea of, even as a young woman, how very aware she is of her presence yeah. and her charm and <laughs> how much potential she's got. Because, oh, my God, if you are aware of that at that age, imagine the destruction you can write, <laughs> like, wrought with that. Oh, my I goodness. Know. I learned that way too late. I learned that at the <laughs> end of my peak, you know. I was on the downslope by the peaking. time I figured that out. You're still peaking? <laughs> no, I'm on the other side of the crest, let's be honest. Oh, we all are really, aren't we? <laughs> Anyway, let us not lament our own lost youth. <laughs> let our us faded, return to Gladys's our faded womanly witchiness. <laughs> We're just getting, yeah, that's all right. We'll just get haggy and that will be even better. It's a much more powerful form of womanly witchiness. Yeah. yeah. We're going to embrace our hagginess. Yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> also by this sort of time, so we're getting towards the end of the 1800s here, getting towards the turn of the century. And Gladys, as I said, is blossoming into this woman. What a terrific turn of phrase that is, <laughs> blossoming into a woman. <laughs> Father's health is sadly failing, as is his mind and his memory. So he agrees to release the girls back into the care of Florence. 
And after she completes her studies in America, Gladys heads back to Europe to live with her mother. Now, sadly, Gladys never ends up seeing her father again, even though she keeps up in contact with him the way she did with her mother when she was in the opposite circumstances. And he was slowly becoming sort of worse and worse. And shortly before he died, Florence said that he was having sort of delusions and telling everybody that he was like the nephew of Moses. Oh, and that's an, um, mm-hmm. it's an interesting one to latch on to. But so he was really rather unwell towards the end of his life here. And he passed away in 1901. When he did, he left each of his daughters an enormous inheritance. And this is basically what Gladys can live off for the rest of her life. So Mm. this basically sets her and her sisters up. Now, she's in Europe now with her mother. She's schooled and her mother wants the best for her. So she's schooled for a while in Germany, in Italy, in France, of course. She uh, learns multiple languages. She becomes incredibly well read in, you know, all sorts of the classics, Mm. also in the writers of the time who are coming through. She's incredibly well educated. She's turning not only into a beauty but also into a great intellect as well. Yeah. So when she kind of returns to Paris at the end of her schooling, she's becoming quite the notable lady and a society beauty who's full of wit and charm. And she begins to attract sort of the peak of the society who's around her at the time. Apparently Gertrude Stein's brother Leo proposed to her at this point. Oh, God, um, imagine having Gertrude Stein as your sister-in-law. I know. Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Amazing. I don't know. It would be terrifying. <laughs> I think it would be terrifying too. <laughs> Very intimidating. But she declined to marry Leo. He wasn't the only one. She was also courted by the Crown Prince Wilhelm of Germany. Oh, I think he was a suitor of Leanne de Pucci as well. Fucking. Or the Valtes. But one this, of them. This is the thing, right? Because... I think this comes back to this idea that we talked about in that episode that if you were a wealthy aristocratic or royal sort of like and if there were society beauties, it was your job or it was your sort of task, your challenge to try Sleep and with all of them. To bed as many of like collect them all. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And in both directions, we should say as mm. well. Like oh, not definitely. just for men. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it definitely worked the other way because later it said that Gladys claimed she'd slept with almost every prime minister in Europe. Holy and, shit. Yeah, and that she'd slept with most of the European kings as well. Wow. That's so, quite a claim to fame. It's quite a claim to fame. So, yeah, it definitely is a two-way street. Of, yeah. Yeah, everyone's basically trying to get as many notches on the yeah. bed as, as many very fancy notches as they can in their very yeah. fancy belts. Exactly. And yeah. so they can kind of, you know, compare, have you slept with? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and have you? Yeah, I oh, know. I totally slept with And everybody too. thinks that everyone back then was so repressed. They were like horny as fuck and not ashamed of it. <laughs> so They were true. sleeping with everybody. Yeah, but think of the syphilis. Oh, oh the God. syphilis. Yeah. Actually, yeah. syphilis does play – well, it doesn't play a part, but it might get a mention later in the story. Okay. So as well as all this royalty, she also is falling into the circles of many of the artists who are around at the time as well who are inspired, of course, by her beauty and find real inspiration in Gladys. So she's moving in circles with people like Monet, Degas, Rodin <sighs> – 
And also the Italian artist Giovanni Boldini, who fell madly in love with her, but who she constantly refused. And Because she's playing that game her mother taught her with him. She's treating him like a dog, right? Yeah, exactly. But also apparently he was a little bit sort of handsy and a bit Stay, Boldini. (laughs) Down, Boldini. I don't know if she really would have found Boldini all that attractive. (laughs) But even Marcel Proust, of course, the French novelist, and uh, he wrote of her exceeding beauty and intelligence. So even he was falling in love with her. And she became friends with, you know, the likes of author Edith Wharton and poet Edith Sitwell. More Ediths. So many Ediths. So many Ediths. Edith is definitely – it's going to be the name for 2020. Edith is on my list. It's like on my short list of names. All right, let's say that's the name for 2020 out there, people. <laughs> uh, Nobody steal so, it now. All right, okay. I won't steal it. Yeah. I'm not taking Edith from you. No one take Edith. You already have a child <laughs> called Edith. Change it. For a child that doesn't exist. Change it. never exist, but, you know. <laughs> anyway, so she's moving in these incredibly elite circles in Europe and she's garnering all this adoration everywhere she goes. But her mother decides in 1902 – that she wants to expand out Gladys's world. and so Oh, she my take- God. So, like, mum's totally on board. She's like, you are oh. not sleeping with enough fancy men. I know more fancy men and I'm going to hook you guys up. You don't worry. Mum's going to be the best wing woman you have ever had. Do you know, I think her mother's kind of fabulous, hey? <laughs> she sounds great. She yeah, does. I'm all for Florence. She sounds like a really good mother. Um, <laughs> is Florence also on your name of your list of names? Uh, yeah, I've thought about that one, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. thought you might have considered I've given the Florence, Florence a try. Yeah. All right. Anyway, so <laughs> she decides she's going to debut her daughter in London society. So she takes her over to the UK and here, of course, again, Gladys quickly falls in with the best of the best. Now, interestingly... She happens to fall into a very close friendship with Consuela Vanderbilt, right? What? Oh, Remember her? gosh. Oh, is this going to turn into like a single white female thing? <laughs> oh, not quite, but that would be good. <laughs> but, of course, the wife of the Duke that yes. she's had this fucking crush on since she was a kid. She's right. going to weasel in. Isn't this It's fascinating? Like you think about the crushes like you had when you were a kid and imagine – this is the thing you make up for yourself. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I'm going to meet Christian Slater yeah. at this thing for God knows what reason I'll run into Christian Slater. Who can marry say? Christian Slater and die. <laughs> and he's going to see me and he's going to fall in love with me and then that will happen. And yeah. going to marry Christian Slater and die. Like how Katie Holmes grew up with Tom Cruise pictures on her walls and then she met him and had a baby with him and then he turned into – she realised that he was Tom Cruise and divorced him. See, like it's that. very similar. <laughs> I think they're the same person. Katie and Gladys are the same person good. in this story. But, I mean, what are the odds for Gladys quite good, actually? <laughs> because she's already in the society. When you're in these circles, they're quite small though, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. And also you can basically like kind of just say on the slide to someone, hey, do you know blah, blah, blah? Cool. Yeah. Can you introduce me? Yeah. Cool. And that's all yeah. it takes. Whereas the rest of us fucking plebs. We've got no chance. No. We just have to marry other plebs. I'm never going to meet Nick Carter. Oh, sorry, Lauren. I don't know. Is Nick Carter <laughs> I don't someone you want to marry Not anymore? anymore. <laughs> Not no. anymore. 20 yeah. years ago, Lauren Same. wanted to marry Nick Carter. I'm just talking about my childhood fantasies. Yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, he was yeah. my my dream boat. 
Yeah, precisely. Just like current me would not marry current Christian Slater. No. Yeah. that's. But 14-year-old Alicia might. <laughs> would have been all over it. Yeah. If there had been any possibility of it happening, which there wasn't. <laughs> so, although I did sit next to one of my childhood crushes in an airport once. Yes. And I said, said nothing to him and I regret that for the rest of my life. Yeah, that's a wasted <sighs> opportunity. I was sitting right next to Lou Diamond Phillips, people, right next to him. And I could have said to him, <laughs> I used to watch Young Guns 2 repeatedly because that whole movie is just a fantasy of men. All the beautiful <laughs> men in the world are in Young Guns 2, just so you know. And I said nothing to him. And then as we got up to get on the plane, this other woman ran up to him and gave him a hug and was like, oh, I love you. And I was like, I should have just done hug. that. It could have been your hug. Why didn't I just do that? Anyway, regrets, you know. This is where Gladys is. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. That's what we're At the airport sitting next to the Duke and she's, she's like, like, oh, my God. Um, do I ask the Duke for a hug? Oh, fuck. I don't know. What do I do? Instead, I get him to autograph my bag? Who can say? Of course, yes. So she becomes friends with Consuela and falls into the circle of the Duke, this man of her dreams. And, of course, by this stage, as we said, you know, the marriage between the Duke and the Duchess has been one of convenience. There's not a lot of love lost there. And Consuela herself has fallen in love with the Duke's cousin, even though she goes on to marry somebody else anyway, a Frenchman. And the Duke, well, you can guess what's happened here. Is he spotted our Gladys across the room? Bloody no. hell, has he ever? Yes, he has. Oh, okay, good. The good. Duke has fallen well and truly under Gladys's mature witchcraftian spell. Is this a movie? Are you just <laughs> telling me the plot of a delightful reimagined, you know, one of those 19th century remakes that they're doing now, you know, a la Emma, etc. <laughs> a delightful retelling no. of some great romance? There's some undelightfulness coming, remember, oh. so... From the Duke? No, not specifically from the Duke. This is Gladys's hubris, remember? Oh, We've yeah. Flagged that's that right. hubris. Her hubris. I forgot yeah. about her hubris. Never forget <sighs> hubris. Never forget that downfall, people. So. Tragedies get us every time when we forget about yeah. the hubris. So, as I said, this marriage is falling apart. And Gladys kind of positions herself very nicely in between them. And she firmly installs herself at Blenheim Palace, which is where the Duke mm. lives, as his mistress. So <sighs> she fucking moves in, in as there. his She's mistress. She's done it. She's done it. She's so close to her dream. Now, not only has she, like, gotten in with the Duke, but Blenheim Palace, let's just have a talk about that for a fucking minute, right? All right. This place is a fancy fucking piece of real estate. <laughs> it's the traditional home of where the Duke of Marlborough lives, obviously, and it's this enormous sprawling palace, yeah. <laughs> as, the, as the name suggests, in Oxfordshire. And it is gorgeous. So she's fallen bang into the lap of yeah. the man of her dreams. Is this like when Elizabeth sees Pemberley for the first time and she's just it like. Is. She's like, what have I done? Oh, my God. <laughs> like, oh, I've made a mistake. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Except Gladys is, she's there. She's yeah. there. So. We would think, right, the Duke is getting divorced because that's all falling apart and Consuela wants out and the Duke wants out and here she is already where she wants to be. You know, Such you'd think timing. the way is paved. Yes. What could possibly go wrong this for Gladys This is the end now? of the movie. 
But it's not, <sighs> is it? This is just the beginning of Act 2. This is the horror. Yeah, shit. This is where the wheels start to fall off. Now, amazingly, at this point in time, Gladys is only 22 years old, right? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Seemingly <course>. has everything, <laughs> right? Of course she's only 22. The Duke, not 22. No. Uh, shit's going away. But despite all of her beauty and despite how much she was admired and adored by artists and painters and fucking plebs in the street. Yeah. Gladys, like most of us, I'm sure this is familiar territory, there was something she hated about herself. Oh, no. If you're lucky enough not to hate something about your body, then fucking props to you. But I think a lot of us can relate to disliking something about how we look, Mm. right? Whether or not that is justified or whether or not that is just completely body dysmorphia or whatever that might be. Gladys hated her nose. Right. She hated it. She thought it basically ruined her face. Wow. Now, we're in Edwardian England and neoclassicism is all the rage in art. Yeah. And this is what Gladys wants. She wants that sort of classic Hellenic nose. Interesting. It's It's not what she has. Yeah. So even though she modelled for artists and, you know, they considered her a goddess, she would tour around art galleries, gazing at works of art, Mm. looking at the Grecian statues and the models and longingly trying to find, like longingly looking at these noses, trying to find the perfect nose, you know. And this is what she desired the most. Now, (laughs) I have to say, unfortunately for her, but fortunately for the process of history that comes the history of plastic surgery is an interesting thing we say plastic surgery but of course plastic is a very modern thing Mm. but the history of cosmetic or reconstructive surgery is quite long and it goes back over 2000 years which is amazing and there is a difference obviously between cosmetic surgery and reconstructive surgery Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the motivations behind those two different things and I'm not, I don't want to shame anyone who's had cosmetic surgery and I'm not trying to do that because it's a seriously complex issue, obviously, yeah. about image and identity. So I don't want to take it lightly, but in Gladys's case, it's really going to be quite a tragedy. So anaesthetics had come about in around about the 1840s. Thank fuck. So if you want to go time travelling, then don't go back before the 1840s. Because <laughs> but even though they existed then... I don't know how widely they were used or how accessible it was though, right? Yeah, or how entirely effective they were. Or safe. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But they did start to change medical and surgical history for Mm, sure. For sure, definitely. And because of these advances in anaesthetics, by the end of the 19th century, the demand for cosmetic surgery had started to boom. Yeah. And... There's a long history, as I said, of plastic surgery. This is actually how I found out about Gladys in the Mm. first place. (laughs) I was watching a Michael Mosley documentary about plastic surgery. Oh. Yeah. Which I had to kind of watch with my hand up covering my eyes because so much of it was really disturbing and difficult to look at. Because 
I had mentioned syphilis and syphilis was one of the things that added to the advancement of Oh, of course, because that could be so disfiguring. Yeah. Yeah. So in Bologna in the 16th century, there was a surgeon who – syphilis was rife, absolutely mm. fucking rife. And one of the things that syphilis would often do would it would basically rot your nose off your face. Yeah. Like you could tell that someone had syphilis because they were noseless. Mm-hmm. Which is horrific when you think about it. Mm. And so this surgeon in Bologna in the 16th century was really obsessed with trying to find a way to reconstruct noses. And this is slightly off tangent, but it is fascinating. And if you want to know more, I highly suggest you watch the Michael Mosley documentary about it. But this led to sort of like experimenting with different ways of kind of grafting skin from one part of the body to Mm -hmm. the next But, of course, in the early days, and, I mean, this goes back even further, basically, like, back to India in, you know, like, BCE, where there was this idea of a pedicle, which is basically taking a strip of skin from one part of the body and attaching it to Uh the other part of the body and leaving it there so that the blood flow can (gasps) continue. Oh, yes, I've seen pictures of this. Yeah, and it's really, like, it's really quite horrific stuff. And this 16th century idea fed through even into the next advancement in reconstructive surgery which of course came about with the turn of the 20th century and the first and second world wars yeah because this yeah. was a period there was in huge time. advancements oh. because of the first world war wasn't there because i guess Absolutely. there was so many men mm-hmm. coming back with disfigurements yeah. and yeah serious injuries that required reconstructive surgery yeah and injuries the likes of which no one had ever seen before yeah And especially in the Second World War as well with things like aviation fuel and, you know, burns Burns. that pilots had, all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, it's a really fascinating history. I I shouldn't delve too far into it because it does go a little bit away from Gladys. But there were so many different ways and approaches to both cosmetic and reconstructive surgery. So here though, have we been largely with the reconstructive side of the surgery up until I'm imagining this sort of era, the Edwardian era, where advancements in medical science, et cetera, plus of course, I guess the influence of, of World War One, which is still on the horizon, I imagine, mm, from mm, where we are yeah, now. Yeah. But we're still getting close. Is this where we start to see the shift into cosmetic surgery? Like elective? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Mm -hmm. having it to improve cosmetic appearance as opposed to actually fixing some sort of issue. Some sort of disfigurement or problem. Yeah. This is where it becomes something that the wealthy can purchase, yes, to basically change their looks. Yeah. And people were experimenting with things like, fucking like implanting ivory, tree sap, animal cartilage. Like there were all sorts of ways of, you know, kind of experimenting with cosmetic surgery. And more and more people were buying into it at the end of the 19th century trying to give it a go. And I think that this is an interesting one when we talk about beauty because, you know, we all – I think kind of we think about, you know, cosmetic surgery as sort of this thing of like, well, you know, if you're wearing makeup, you're still changing how you look. So what's the difference Mm. to cosmetic surgery if you're changing how you look? But I think the difference is that, you know, changing and and enhancing your beauty or changing and enhancing the way you look through something 
that is reversible is very, very different to changing and enhancing the way you look through something that is invasive and And permanent. permanent. Again, though, not trying to cast any sort of judgment on it, but just thinking of it in those kind of different ways. So Gladys eventually found the inspiration for the nose that she wanted and she purchased her operation, her rhinoplasty, I suppose we might call it, and basically the product that was going to be used was paraffin wax. Paraffin wax? Paraffin wax. That doesn't seem like a very stable substance to use for reconstructive nose surgery. It's because that's because it's not. <laughs> it's really not. Oh, dear. So This is in the early experimental stage then, I'm guessing. This is in the early 1900s. Yeah. Right. Now, I think she had this operation even either in like 1902 or 1903. Wow, really early. As I said, she's only 22 or something mm. at this age. So basically what this meant was, you know, she went into the doctor. The doctor would have had to wear, obviously would have had to wear protect- protective gloves, but he also would have had to wear protective gloves to protect him from the heat of the syringe that the wax was in. Right. Because that would have had to be heated up to such a degree that the wax has melted. Yes, of course. You don't want it to So that it to, can reset. Yep. Exactly. Shape. Yeah, yeah. You don't want it to cool in the syringes yet. Yep. Then the doctor would make an incision in the nose. Oh my god. Cut in the nose. Insert the syringe, the wax into her nose. Jesus. Oh, my God. And, and this wasn't under anaesthetic. Oh. She was just oh. getting a syringe. She was getting a syringe full of a hot paraffin wax. Paraffin wax. Hot, wet Into wax. her nose. You know, like when a, a candle drips on you just for like a mm-hmm. second, how much yep. that hurts? Oh, my yep. God. This is getting injected into her nose now. And now there's only about 30 seconds before it starts to harden. Yeah. So the doctor has to start molding it. Shaping it. He's like an actual sculptor. He's he's sculpting sculpting the wax into the shape of her nose. Yep. Sculpting the wax I mean, I don't know how it works these days. Maybe they still do that. But I assume it's not with hot wax. (laughs) Not with fucking (laughs) paraffin wax though. (laughs) So he's only got 30 seconds to shape this perfect nose onto the patient's face. Right? Wow. And then it hardens. Bada bing, bada boom. You'd think that's a miracle. You know, She's got the fucking nose of her nose dreams. Nose of her dreams. But before you start thinking to yourself that that's a good idea and you might give yourself a quick fucking Please makeover don't. with this some wax. Not, yeah, this is not a. Do not do that. <laughs> because it was a fucking disaster. Not surprising. A total disaster. And despite its popularity, loads of people were doing this. And the reason Gladys did it was because she'd heard about how many more people mm. were doing it. She got on the bandwagon, but people ended up with all sorts of problems from this. Some people went blind. Some people got blood clots in their lungs. Some oh, people, my God. Yeah, some people's flesh would actually wither and die and, like, drop off of their body. Like, Wow. You've basically just injected this poisonous substance into your body and it would start to wander. Oh, fuck. It would actually literally melt and wander. Yeah, well, I'm even just thinking, like, what happens if you go out in the sun on a really hot day? That's does your right, nose Lauren. literally melt off of your face? Lauren, yes, it does. Oh, my God. That's exactly what happens. It melts. It gets into your bloodstream and it starts to shift so, around okay, your body. Okay, I'm sorry. 
I understand you need to experiment to understand, to figure out what works, especially mm. back then you've got no ethics committee that you're going to mm-hmm. with your like, yep. we're going to start human trials on this shit. Like yep. that doesn't exist. Yep. So yep. I understand still though, that there's a process. You need to know what works. We wouldn't have ended up where we are if we didn't have these All those happen. disasters that but, happened first. But when you experiment and your patient that you have put the paraffin wax in starts to get blood clots in their lungs because the wax has melted and moved amongst their body, do you not at that point then say, okay, maybe wax is not actually the thing that we should be using. Maybe we need to try something else and we're going to not do this procedure anymore because this is ethically fucked up. You would think that. But no. But that's not what happened. Because these early cosmetic surgeons who were working with these particular um, materials, they were, I mean, by and large, they were seen as quacks by the medical establishment, right? They weren't actually. I'm assuming they don't have medical licenses. So a lot of this kind of just went on underground. You heard about this from so-and-so who had her nose done or whatever and you thought it was a really good idea. So you wanted to give it a try as well. And you might hear the horror stories, but you might think, oh, it's worth giving it a try all the yeah. same. Yeah, like, it's how not going to happen to me. You never think it's going to happen to you. Yeah. So it's really quite it's, – it's fucking horrific. And this is what started to happen was that basically every time this wax heated up, it would run oh and then it, it would harden again wherever Somewhere it ran else. to in the body. And, and is she getting refilled? Like every time it melts, is she getting it redone or something? Like is no. she getting it fixed? No, she made her mistake once and that, and that was, was it. it. Okay. Well, that's so something. this was kind of people who were dying from it came to be known as wax cancer or paraphrenoma. <sighs> but luckily for Gladys, the worst that happened was, I mean, it did destroy her face, but she didn't end up getting any of these cancers or more serious problems but it all ran and ended up settling in her <gasps> chin. Oh, no. And so she ended up with a very pronounced, prominent chin. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, which you can see in the photos of her. Photos of her after this become harder and harder to come by. Yeah. Because obviously she Declined shied away from the, the camera. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. After this, she was less and less um, happy to be in front of the camera. But there are still a few photos around, even some selfies basically she took of herself that you can see. Wow. And this, of course, it devastated Gladys. It really, you can just imagine the kind of impact this would have on someone who mm. so much of her life has been about beauty. Has yeah. Been about and this is basically her, her job. Like we have to remember that for socialites, yes. yep. that's their job. Mm-hmm. That's what you do. It's how you survive. Because if you don't have that, you don't have anything to fall back on. Well, this is the amazing thing, though, is that in Gladys's case, she did have something to fall back on in the terms of the fact that she was intelligent. She Mm. was witty. Yeah, she was incredibly funny and incredibly charming. And despite what she had done to her face, this didn't actually ruin her reputation as, as a beauty even. The Duke still adored her oh, and they did eventually go on to marry once his divorce to Consuela was finalised. Okay. And that took years. That actually took years. So the Duke didn't abandon Gladys Mm. just because Mm. of this (laughs) really quite horrific thing that had happened. 
And poets and artists still wrote about her. Baldini, who was that Italian painter who was in love with her, apparently yeah. kept sending her imploring messages to return to him. So she obviously has – this is kind of interesting though, isn't it? Because she obviously can't see how much else she has going on for her. There's clearly something that's more than just her beauty. And I'm sure that even with the wax chin that she ended up with, she was still probably beautiful, I have no doubt. But like, well, that's right. She yeah. clearly has so much more to her than that in terms of that intelligence that she has and that wit and that charm yep. that is still drawing people to her. But I'm going to assume that she can't see that and that she probably thinks of herself as being a monster now. And, and I think, yeah, I think a lot of her confidence was shattered after yeah. this, basically. Obviously, you know, she did go on to marry the Duke, but she did become a bit of a recluse after Mm. this. So it clearly heavily impacted her mental health. And it's even said that she would sit by the fire at night, letting the wax soften in her face so that she could move it around her face, trying to shape her face back into the beauty it had once been. Oh, that's weird. To think about, isn't it? That is full on. That's a full on. That's really devastating. Like it's actually really upsetting oh. to think about. It's really horrific. But as I said, the Duke was still at this point still in love with her. And at Blenheim Palace he had multiple portraits of her put up around. Um, he had pictures of her eyes painted directly onto the ceiling. He had sculptures commissioned wow. of her. Kind of ironically he had two sphinxes in the garden of Blenheim Palace modelled on Gladys and I think that association of the sphinx with the nose is a Uh bit ironic right (laughs) and I don't know if he did that on purpose or probably not not. there's a lot of symbolism in the sphinx it's interesting but she became a recluse and she fell in love with breeding spaniels because that's what you do when you're rich yeah i guess so and you're a recluse you become obsessed with spaniels yeah i don't know but (laughs) over time things started to become a bit strange between her and the duke she did fall pregnant to him but she regretted it immediately as soon as she fell pregnant she realized it's not what she wanted and to her relief she actually miscarried And to stop it from happening again, she began to keep a revolver under her pillow in her bedroom to what? stop the Duke from coming into her bedchambers. What? Yeah. Whoa, she was... that is an intense contraceptive method. Wow. <laughs> Very intense Stay the fuck away from me or I will shoot you. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like so my dad shot my mom's boyfriend. Yeah, that family <laughs> tree comes back, doesn't it? always full circle so we can see that you know obviously the relationship becomes strained yes not going well apparently one night she even turned up with up to dinner with the pistol and when asked why she'd brought it down to dinner she was like oh i don't know i thought i might just shoot the duke oh that (laughs) was a general okay so there's something going on there so this is a bit of a sign of her deteriorating mental health right Mm. and in 19 33, the Duke had had enough of her and he eventually turned her out of Blenheim. He cut off all the facilities to the palace and fired all the staff. So she was basically just left there with nothing. Whoa, hang on a minute. Sorry. So he didn't kick her out. Instead, what he left and then turned everything off? That's how he kicked her out because she refused to leave. So oh. he cut off all the facilities, fired all the staff. Oh, my God. And so she had, she had no – She had to leave. She had to leave, basically. Yeah. 
She had no recourse but to leave. Hardcore. Also, many of her belongings belongings were taken away at this time as well. And he refused her entry to any of his other houses because he's a duke. He's got a bunch of them. He can do that. He can do that. But she still has her father's inheritance though, doesn't she? Like it's not like she's out on the streets surely. She's not penniless. That's right. It's more that she's being scratched from the Duke's life. Yeah. The guards at Blenheim Palace were told that they were never to speak of her again and (laughs) all of her pictures were removed like she'd basically been airbrushed out from the history of Blenheim Palace. I don't know if any of the artwork still exists there, any of the sphinxes or the eyes that were painted onto Blenheim Palace. They might actually still be there. But in terms of a lot of the artwork that they collected over the years, because she had been painted by impressionists, she'd been painted by a whole bunch of different artists, and she had a lot of those paintings and sketches. They were all removed. She did take some of them with her because some of them, you know, were given to her by those artists. Mm. They belonged to her. So she did end up keeping a lot of those. And she began a case to divorce him because he hadn't divorced her at Mm. this stage. He just kicked her out. And she began arranging the papers for it, but it didn't end up being necessary because he actually died shortly afterwards in 1934. Wait. 1934. So did all of this happen like way later? Because we were in, yeah. this is like 30 years later. So she in her 50s by the time she yes. and the Duke have split up? So she had her nose operation in her early 20s, basically went into like reclusive life with the Duke. She was around about 40 by the time she married him. Right. Okay. So they, they still had a very long relationship. They had a very long relationship. Okay. Most of this relationship... Most of the time after her botched nose job was spent fairly under the radar. Mm. They did still entertain at Blenheim Palace. They entertained some of those authors that I spoke of earlier. Mm. Um, Winston Churchill also was a visitor often to Blenheim Palace, although apparently Gladys said she hated Winston Churchill. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, they still did move in circles. But she just became more and more reclusive. And shied away from that limelight. Yep. So there is a period of her life here, like 20 years of her life. Which is not that much is going on except for the Spaniels. Yeah, breeding Spaniels. Yeah. That's basically it. Yeah. So soon after the Duke died, she retreated to a small little cottage that she purchased for herself. And this here she became like a total recluse. Mm. Absolutely. She lived here on her own. She basically would never leave the house during daylight hours. She'd only go outside to walk her dogs at night. And she was basically here living like this for the next 30 years. Wow. So she wouldn't have even noticed COVID. (laughs) No, no, not a a bit. (laughs) She became a bit of a crazy cat lady essentially. She did have all the spaniels still but she also just collected animals. She loved cats collected cats which you know who can blame her (laughs) and her house kind of started to fall into disrepair basically like it became the animals overrun it she's become that lady she's become that lady yeah Local children wouldn't walk near her house oh, because they thought no, she was a witch. she's that lady. She turned into the bog witch. <laughs> she became the hag. That is also a life goal though. Yes. Like, oh, no. I was actually just thinking about the fact that I feel like, no offense, I mean this with love, but you're only a couple of steps away from this really. <laughs> who, me? <laughs> yeah. Me. The cat yeah. lady who doesn't leave the house. 
It's true. I feel yeah. like you aspire a little bit to hag life in a dilapidated cottage with your I cats. I do. I mean, I have a porch and children do have to walk past my house to go to the local primary school. So <laughs> I feel like I am well-placed to become that person that yeah. they run past they my house. They skirt around and, yeah. and they dare each other when they walk past to go yeah. and, like, knock on your door. Exactly. I'm so close to this life goal. I've almost attained it. It's not that far away. No. Anyway, well, Gladys attained it. <laughs> and so rumours even circulated that when her animals died, she'd put them in the fridge oh. to bury them later. And That's her- okay, no, but I'm sorry, but that's actually not quite as crazy as it sounds because if no, you can't bury true. them immediately because of a Keeps whole number fresh. of practical reasons. She's an old lady by this point. I don't think that she's got the upper body strength to go digging holes willy-nilly in the ground and you don't want to cat just decomposing on your yeah. living room That's true, but I don't, know she, I don't know if she had anything else in the fridge other than dead cats though. Okay. That might <laughs> I'm be. Not sure. I'm not sure. I'm sure she be. had to. <laughs> That's probably an exaggeration. That's she has just a jar of pickles to, or something in there. That's true. That's just me trying to exaggerate the story. <laughs> for effect. Don't slander her. Come on. Basically, look, her living conditions became so decrepit that in 1962, at the age of 81, mind wow. you, she was forcibly removed from <gasps> her cottage and she was taken to St Andrew's Hospital, which was basically a psychiatric hospital. And here she stayed in the psychiatric hospital and basically lived out oh, many more years of her life. She died in 1977 at the age of 96. So wow. is there a film of her life? Because this feels like the type of film that I feel like Joan Crawford would have done very well in. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I think there's lots of films about women around her of the yeah. time, obviously. I'm not sure. But do you know what I mean? It totally film. has those vibes. Oh, yeah. It's very Joan Crawford, isn't it? Whatever happened to baby Jane. Yes. <laughs> any doubt. No, but there is a biography of her by Hugo Vickers, which is from where I took most of this information mm-hmm. from, is from Hugo Vickers' biography. Although I couldn't get my hands on it in full and I basically just had to take bits and pieces from the internet. The Google Books preview. Yeah, precisely. (laughs) And other bits and pieces that I could find. But he first wrote this in the 70s because he actually did end up interviewing her in the last few years of her life while she was in St Andrew's Hospital. Because much like Gladys had sort of fallen in love with the Duke when she was young, Hugo Vickers heard Gladys's story when he was a young teenager and he sort of became obsessed with her. Right. And tracked her down and then, yeah, interviewed her and basically wrote her biography in cool. those last few years of her life. It's been republished just this year. Okay, cool. I believe it's just come out. He's rewritten it and re-released it just recently. So I think you should be able to get your hands on it if you'd like to read it, if you'd like to go a little bit more into depth with it. But it is one of those sorts of stories where there are peaks, you know, such highs uh, and such incredible lows. Especially that downward trajectory. Like I feel like this is the kind of same, you know, really tragic decline that we had with somebody like Hedy Lamarr where Mm. they had this beautiful, glamorous lifestyle. They had everything going for them, money, wealth, like, amazing friends the kind of lifestyle the rest of us can only dream about and then Mm -hmm. they end up in these kind of really sad circumstances somehow Mm -hmm. you know like hubris that's well maybe some hubris but also i think yeah 
And that's not the because only reason, though. Yeah, there's something that's just sort of lacking in their lives that is, you know, obviously so important <laughs> fundamentally to what makes us human. And there's something, you know, in their relationships or in their connections that they can never quite get that mm. leads them into these really sad endings. Mm. And it's kind of like just that immense sense of hope at the beginning of her story, like yeah. setting out into the world with, yeah, with essentially the world at her feet. Yeah, she had like, everything. She had everything. everything, could have had anything more that she wanted. Yeah. And, yeah, just that really steady decline. Yeah, that's so sad. It's such a sad story in the end. I'm sorry that I told a sad story. <laughs> Actually, I regret it. Scrap it. I'll do someone else. <laughs> but No, but fascinating as well, though. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's what, as I said, you know, I came across her because of the connection to her, to the paraffin wax story, and that's what yeah got my interest in her. I was like, who is this woman, yeah. you know? And I thought that looking into her I wouldn't find much more about her other than the fact that, you know, this was her claim to fame, mm. that she was one of the victims of this paraffin wax craze. Yeah. But – no, there was so much more to her story and her background and her family's life that really kind of just fell into all of those really interesting, I don't know, that's like, yeah. like you said, it should be a movie because there are so many different interesting yeah. parts and to it. It's a really interesting contrast to somebody like Leander Pouget, who we did a couple of weeks ago, mm. who had maybe like the opposite trajectory Trajectory. of her life who ended up in those circles and ended up with that lifestyle but started from somewhere very very different and ended Mm. somewhere very very different but still for a little while there in the middle moved in the same circles yeah essentially and I mean I think in terms of the time that they were around in Paris I think Pouget was maybe a little bit later well she was turn of the century yeah, yeah, so they were, they were essentially about around about the same time yeah. and they were moving in some very similar circles. But that world in general, just thinking about, you know, how society, I guess this is, is this how celebrities still function today? Yeah, is this what celebrity know. society is? Is, is that what has replaced <laughs> sort of like moneyed society? <laughs> yeah. You know, nobility and stuff. Is it just celebrities who do this shit now? I don't know. The kardashians and the hills i don't know yeah <laughs> is that i don't it? know <laughs> i've got I'm no idea i'm not that no i am not the person to ask <laughs> i do feel like plastic surgery um or cosmetic surgery has i should say has way. come a long way very long way and probably pays off much better now yes, than it used to i think it's very very different thing now yeah, <laughs> but at the same time, as we were saying before, you know, like those early experiments which were horrific and disastrous did add to the all of the progress that came later and, yeah, yeah as we said, through into the, the world wars where, you know, so many leaps and bounds were made in what was possible to do. So, yeah. I don't know, her story goes all over the place but I thought it was – a yeah, it was fascinating. One. It was. I feel and like I it's really different. So, um, not it wasn't the horror story that I imagined, but it's a a, a horror story of its own, perhaps in some ways. So, <laughs> yeah. the horrific, the thing that was horrific was horrific in a very different way than I imagined, but a really fascinating, interesting way, and and a topic that we haven't really actually discussed. You know, no. cosmetic surgery is something we've talked about makeup, talked about beauty standards, but we haven't really got onto that subject before. No, and I sort of think about as well. You know, like. 
for me, that kind of image of her sitting in front of the fire, yeah. reworking yeah. her misshapen face. I feel like that's, the, that's what Joan Crawford would do so well. Yeah. It's very Miss Havisham as well, yes, isn't it? Yes, it is. Or a rose for Miss Emily. Oh, my God. So many gothic undertones. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> to that. Let's just so. we'll cast the ghost of Joan Crawford <laughs> in the movie of Gladys's Life. Woo! Done. Great. Excellent. I don't know how we're going to do that. So, um, <laughs> any idea where we're going to be going next time? Not set in stone. Not set oh, in stone. Okay. A few ideas are swirling around. I uh, have to make a couple of decisions very soon. But uh, All right. I'm sure it'll be great. I'm going to try to avoid <laughs> the turn of the century and the early 20th century. Uh, good luck with that. Yeah. We'll see how that turns out. <laughs> in the meantime, of course, you can catch up on all of our past episodes wherever you yeah. get your episodes that wasn't very helpful or specific was it and if you want even more content say for example some extra bonus hole in history episodes that we do such as our most recent one on the latest snow you can find us at a patreon and join for as little as two dollars a month and we have a new patreon episode coming out very soon as well yes. so keep your ears peeled for that or if you want some merch maybe you want a t-shirt a pin uh you can find us on etsy and, of course, if you can't afford to support us monetarily at this time or at any time, that's fair enough. Just leave us a review instead because we love reviews. So please rate and review us. And that's all from us. So, as always, a very big thank you to India Hui for the music, Brenda Davies for the sound, and to Dan, our executive producer. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.